Yes, uh, John did put his conclusion at the front. <laughs> Those first 18 verses are, could be con- considered a conclusion uh, to the Gospel of John. What a wonderful thing. You know, the Hebrews sang all those psalms, all that scripture in the psalms, the Hebrews sang all of that. You know, I, I wonder what that was like. Uh, uh, <clears throat> well, uh, turn with me, not to First Peter this morning, but to uh, Luke chapter 7. And uh, I've decided to stop on Peter because that passage coming up is so difficult. I'm joking, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I, I thought maybe some of you thinking Dan's trying to not get into that last part of First Peter chapter 3, which is perhaps one of the, or if not the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. But that's not the reason we're not, uh, we're not in Peter <clears throat> here this morning. So Lord willing, uh, we can get back to that next week. And But I won't waste any more time. Uh, so we're going to consider Luke chapter 7 this morning, verses 18 through, through 23. And if you were here 22 years ago, you've already heard this sermon, but it's okay if you can hear it again. Actually, I boiled two down into one. And that's always dangerous when you try to do that. Okay, two into one. But that's what I've done. We're going to be in the passage where... John the Baptist sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus if he is the coming one or if they should look for another. And John is in prison, Luke 7 and verse 18. I'll find it. Then the disciples of John reported to him, that is, the disciples of John reported to John, John the Baptist, Concerning all these things, Jesus' works and miracles, and John, calling two of his disciples, said to him, uh, two of his disciples to him, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, when the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And at that very hour, Jesus cured many of, with infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you have seen and heard that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Well, let me begin by asking a few questions. What is this passage primarily about? Why does Luke include it? Why did the Lord preserve this particular account for you and me to consider? When you first begin reading the Gospels, you might become a bit frustrated with Jesus because he just doesn't come out and directly say, I am the Christ. (laughs) I am the Son of God. When I first read the Gospels, why doesn't he just come out and say it? (laughs) Okay, But he doesn't do that. 
very, very seldom. He did that to the Samaritan woman at the well. But in public and other places, he just doesn't come out like that and say it. And this is another example of it. He doesn't say, okay, go back and tell John, hey, I'm the coming one. He didn't tell them to do that, did he? He didn't say, just go back and tell John that I'm the Christ. Not even in this situation did he do that. Why is that? He answers in ways that seem evasive or veiled. There are various explanations of why he did this. Certainly, false Christ took the other approach that I've just mentioned. But it seems clear from Jesus' response in many places that he insisted that those believing in him recognize him to be the Christ by considering his works and message. He insists that they recognize that he's the Christ, not because he says he is, but because they see his works and his messages. And that's a big difference. He's not saying, believe me just because I say I am. He's saying, recognize who I am and then believe in me. And that's what he is doing. And that makes sense when you start thinking about it. That's the key then and now. You recognize who he is and then you believe in and follow him. It is clear to me that all true faith in him must be grounded here. God promised to send a Savior into Israel and the world. Jesus is that Savior. And we must, we must recognize him to be such and put our trust in him. In the passage we are considering today, Jesus comes as close as he does anywhere in claiming to be the Messiah. But the way he does it is to point out that he is the one who fulfills God's promises recorded in the Old Testament. He is saying, I'm the Messiah. Why? I'm the one back here in Isaiah that Isaiah was talking about. Figure it out, guys. I'm that person. That's what he's doing. So this passage is primarily about Jesus indicating that he is the Messiah and Jesus pointing out how we may recognize that he is. John the Baptist's question, are you the coming one or do we look for another, becomes a perfect occasion for showing how people should recognize Jesus to be the Messiah and to show the unreasonableness of the unbelief of those who had rejected John's earlier testimony. John's earlier testimony when he baptized Jesus was, this is the Christ. This is the Lamb of God. And by this time in the Gospel account, there's quite a few that are rejecting John's earlier testimony about Jesus. They're rejecting Jesus, so they're rejecting John's earlier testimony, aren't they? Absolutely. And now they're, going to, they're rejecting both John and Jesus' testimony. And we have reasons here why they should not do that. Why they're wrong in doing that. So let's look at, think about John's doubting here for a moment. Surprisingly to us, 
it was John's doubt, or at least his asking for more confirmation that Jesus was the Christ that occasioned this incident. John's doubt occasioned this incident. Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? John himself did not witness Christ's miracles. Sometimes we lose track of that. But John didn't witness any miracles that Jesus performed because he's been locked up in Herod's prison for nearly, an entire, nearly the entire first year of Jesus' public ministry. John was locked up in prison. So he's not witnessing all that's happening in that first year in Galilee and so forth. And uh, he's locked up there, and John was never released from prison. He was executed by Herod. And you can read the disgusting account and the circumstances of John's execution in Matthew 14. Some have doubted that John actually doubted. <laughs> okay, we got, they're doubting if he doubted. <laughs> and... Uh, and they suggest that, well, John sent his disciples to ask Jesus this question for the sake of his disciples, <laughs> to encourage them to follow Jesus. Uh, granted, you know, after reading Luke's description of John in the early chapters of his gospel, we are surprised to see John asking this question to Jesus. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? That surprises us when you read Luke chapter 3. And, and, and you read Matthew, and you, and you see John the Baptist's testimony. He has no doubt at that time. He has no doubt that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who said to me, you, upon whom you see the Spirit descending as a dove. And so he's completely confident uh, that Jesus is the Messiah at those early days of his ministry. So, yeah, it, it, you know, we have to work through this. But there is nothing in the text of Scripture that indicates John's question was hypothetical for the sake of others. And Jesus directs his answer to John personally. Go and tell John the things which you have seen and heard. Jesus directs his answer personally to John. John is the one that is doubting, has a question mark. He's perplexed. Okay. So it seems the best that we accept it on face value. After being in prison for a year and hearing reports of Jesus' ministry, John is struggling with some doubts regarding Jesus. Is he really the coming one or do we look for another? At this point, we all want to get further into John's mind and experience and find out how or why he got to this condition. How did he get here? Could I possibly end up here? <laughs> we see him earlier, and we admire his selfless courage and zeal. We are inspired by his preaching, exhorted by his message and example, Indeed, he is in prison for righteousness' sake. <laughs> but now we find him in a dark time. Well, I'll give you two suggestions 
based upon the broader content of Scripture as to what may have gone on here. First, our expectation regarding prophets and those whom God used to receive direct revelation, our expectations can be too high of them and unrealistic. We tend to think, well, if you're one of these Old Testament prophets, and John was the last of the Old Testament prophets, if you're one of them, that if a person has received such direct revelation from God, this will simply cement his certainty forever in life, and he'll never have any struggles or doubts. You know, we think, well, he's a prophet. It's going to be easy for him. He's never going to struggle with doubt. Well, uh, no. (laughs) No. These men and women are weak, sinful vessels as we are. Call to mind John's forerunner. Who is that? Elijah. Elijah. Right. John's forerunner, Elijah. Wow. What a, what a zealot. <laughs> and even after such a series of revelations and miracles that Elijah does, and Elijah's amazing victory on Mount Carmel, and, and, and he shames 2,000 prophets of Baal, and all of this. After all of that, we find Elijah in the state of complete despondency. That's where we find him. Complete despondency. Why? Wrong expectations. Let me just plant a seed. Okay, Let's go on. But that's why Elijah ended up in the state that he's in. Wrong expectations. Okay. And, and, and Job, a very righteous man, despaired to the point of cursing the day of his birth. Jeremiah, who was imprisoned himself and seriously mistreated on occasions, struggled with great despair at times. Jonah, we know, became sinfully despondent. He was a prophet. He was sinfully despondent. What God did not work in accordance with Jonah's desires or expectations. And Jonah became deeply despondent, bitterly despondent. Then there's Habakkuk, right? There he is on his watchtower. <laughs> waiting for God to answer him. He's poured out his complaint in chapter 1, right? And he thinks he has a case. <laughs> and, and Habakkuk says, I will stand or wait on my watchtower until he answers me. <laughs> okay. And Habakkuk was, he was in a difficult way, wasn't he? Yeah. And then what about my beloved psalmist, Asaph? (laughs) I can relate to Asaph's psalms better than David's. (laughs) Uh, If you know the difference between those two men and you know the psalms, you know know what I mean, you know. I have more of an Asaph-type experience (laughs) than a David-type of experience in my life. And so what about Asaph? He went into a full-blown depression full of bitterness and resentment as he considered the case of the wicked in comparison to his own difficulties. And it comes to a height in Psalm 73, if you read it there. He was very low, even though he was a prophetic musician, (laughs) we could say. These are all examples that the fragile vessels 
that are used for great revelations from God yet remain just that, fragile vessels. And John the Baptist was no exception to being one of those fragile vessels like all of us. He wasn't. A second matter to consider, and I think this has actually more to do with it, a second matter to consider how John ended up here is seen by considering a question. If you were John, very aware of what you had been preaching regarding the Messiah, what the Messiah would do when he came, what you had been preaching that the Messiah would do when he came, if you were him, what would you be thinking? Had Jesus really done all or most of what John said he would do? No, he did not. What was missing? What was missing that John was thundering out (laughs) that when he comes, this is what he's going to do? And now you're looking and hearing about Jesus' ministry. It's not happening. He's not doing it. What's missing? Well, What's missing that was so prominent in John's preaching is judgment. (laughs) That's missing. (laughs) In John's ministry, that was very prominent. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, what? And fire. And he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff, and he's going to burn up the chaff in unquenchable heat. And if you don't repent, you're going to be toast. (laughs) That was John's preaching. You brood of vipers, who have urged you to flee from the wrath to come. And it's right at the door. The axe is laid at the foot of the tree. And that's what you do when you're swinging an axe, right? You touch it right where you're going to hit And then it's coming, and you raise it up and you swing it. That's John's preaching. But Jesus hadn't cut any trees down yet. (laughs) He hadn't set anything on fire. John's been preaching that. He's not doing it. He's here. He's been here for a year. But Jesus hasn't done that. He hasn't done that. And that's confusing to John. I believe that. You know? He doesn't understand. Jesus hasn't done that yet. Expectations, see? John has certain expectations of how this whole Messiah thing is going to unfold. And you know what? Some of those expectations are wrong. And he's observing this. He's observing this. It's not happening. Not happening. And I'm sitting in this prison for a year. Why doesn't he break me out of this place? He doesn't. He doesn't. Okay? So, you see, Messiah brings blessing and judgment. We know that. We know that from reading the prophets. We know that from John the Baptist's message. He brings blessing and judgment. John's message leaned heavily toward 
the judgment side. But Jesus' ministry thus far leaned heavily in the opposite direction. Blessing, 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 offers of peace, offers of peace, mercy, warnings, yes, warnings, yes. But no judgments, no vengeance of God upon his enemies. Jesus is not like that. And that is confusing to John. Okay? John is likely struggling with what so many were struggling with. Jesus is not lining up with our messianic expectations. Yeah, I think that's really... He's fragile, sure he is. But I think that's what's really going on. That's why he says, are you the coming one? See, Jesus is not lining up with the messianic expectations that he has and a lot of others have. So... Consider Jesus' response in verse 20. Um, When the men had come to him, they said, when, when John's disciples had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, before Luke gives the Lord's answer, Luke interjects verse 21. And that very hour, you see how Luke says that? That very hour, Jesus cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. So as the disciples of John are making their way through the crowd to reach Jesus, at that very hour, Jesus performed these mass healings, not of one or two people, but many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and many blind he gave sight at that very hour. When these two disciples of John are trying to get an audience with Jesus, and there's a multitude of people around there, Jesus is healing hundreds of people. And there's people running around there are saying, I can see, I can see. I'm no longer blind. Can you imagine the scene of what's happening? He's casting out demons. People that couldn't walk are suddenly walking around in that crowd. People that have been blind are now seeing. And John's disciples are coming, trying to get near Jesus to bring these questions. That's, how, that's what's happening. And Luke stops to point, point out at that very hour, the very hour that those two disciples are coming to talk to Jesus, this is what he's doing. And the reason Luke does that is because that's a fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecies. And we're going to see that. So he interjects that. So Jesus' answer then, Go and tell John, I am the coming one. No, he doesn't say that. Okay. He doesn't say, Go and tell John that I'm a coming one. Be assured I am he. Do not look for another. He doesn't say that. That's not his way. That's not Jesus' way. A false Christ would, but not the true Christ. Go and tell John the things which you have seen and heard. Yeah. Go and tell John that, what you've seen and heard. They just saw a whole bunch of it right there when they came to talk to Jesus. They're witnesses of that. 
Tell them the things you have seen and heard. Now, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Go tell that. Go that that's my answer. Go tell John that. Had John heard these reports? Well, yes and no. From verse 18, we know that John's disciples had already reported to John all these things, including Jesus' raising the widow's son from the dead. We know that from verse 18, I won't go there, but the, 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 John's disciples were reporting those things to Jesus. So Jesus was hearing the accounts of... Uh, John was hearing the accounts of Jesus' miracles. But Jesus' response includes a different crucial element. Jesus strings together not eyewitness reports. That John had been hearing eyewitness reports. But... Jesus' response strings together statements from the prophet Isaiah. Jesus strings together phrases from the prophet Isaiah, from passages which describe the coming Christ. Every one of those things that Jesus says, we won't take the time to do it. We could go right in to the book of Isaiah and read the context and pull those out of there. That's what he does. He strings all of those together. And so Jesus' answer summarizes prophecy to describe what is occurring. Are you the coming one? Tell John I am doing the precise thing spoken of Spoken of the Christ in the prophets. Tell John I am doing the precise things to which the prophets speak. That's Jesus' answer to John. Open up your Old Testament, John, and read that. I'm that person promised by the Old Testament prophets. That's how Jesus responded. Yes, John, you may be certain the coming one has come. That's Jesus' method. Now, think about Jesus' list. He mentions only those things which he has thus far done, and they are all blessings, no vengeance. Right? Right? All the things that Jesus pulled out of the prophet are only blessings again. But, so, so John said Jesus would baptize the people with the Holy Spirit and fire, fire referring to judgment, and both Isaiah 35 and 61 speak of blessing and judgment. Isaiah 35, 4 begins with, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Isaiah 35, Your God will come with vengeance. Isaiah 61, 2 states, 
to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus, didn't, Jesus doesn't mention the vengeance parts when he sends back to John. How should, how should John understand Jesus' response? The blessings promised by the prophets of the end time have come. And they prove that the Messiah has come, even though the judgments of the end time are still delayed. That's what John needs to think through. The blessings of the coming one, they're here, they're here, but the judgments have not yet come. Jesus refers to no judgments when he says, go tell John what you've seen. You see, they are delayed. But John's own understanding of that message and his expectations of its fulfillment were not in line with what the Lord intended to do. That's the problem. This led John to questioning and doubting. He had this set of expectations, and, and, and it, it's confusing to him. All those prophecies, they sandwich that stuff together. <laughs> That's one of the difficulties in interpreting Old Testament prophetic Scripture. They got the whole interadvental period sandwiched together in one phrase. <laughs> So you tend to think it happens all at once, but it doesn't. We have enough scripture to know that. And this is a case. It's not all happening right now. The blessings part, the offer of mercy, the space for repentance rather than immediate destruction, that's what's happening now. The destruction's coming, but not yet. It's coming in at 70 A.D., right? <laughs> yeah, some of that vengeance is coming at 70 A.D. But not yet. Not on Israel yet. So, John had these expectations, or, or wrong expectations, are causing this doubt. You know, did John expect the Messiah and his followers to endure seasons of suffering? Did he expect that? Maybe not. Did John expect that the Messiah would be shamed? Not likely. No. Now, there's an important principle here that applies to all of us. That applies to all of us. Our expectations that we know all the specifics of when and how God's promises will be fulfilled in our lives can be very dangerous. Yeah, so dangerous that we may even doubt if Jesus is the Messiah. If our expectations are that far out of line with what Jesus' promises really mean. You see? You see what I mean? That's right. Our expectations need to be informed by all of Scripture. John's expectations are not properly informed by all of Scripture. 
There's a suffering period. There's a shame period. There's a mercy period calling Israel to repentance. Those things are all part. (laughs) So our expectations, I'm repeating intentionally, need to be informed by all of Scripture, not just a few pieces of it. Paul wrote in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time. Ah, there. This present time is going to have sufferings. Okay? We should expect that. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. We got the present time and we got the revelation still to come. So our expectations need to take into account there are going to be sufferings through this present time. Okay? They're not worthy to be compared with the glory that's coming. But the sufferings are here. They're going to be here. God's people are going to suffer in various ways. You know, it was Jesus that said, right? The way, the way that leads to destruction is broad and many that come on it, right? And the way that leads to life is what? Narrow and very difficult. There. Okay. Jesus is helping us to have the right expectations. Right? That's what he's saying. I mean, who preaches that kind of stuff today? We're not ready. This Christians in this nation aren't ready. That narrow way, Jesus says, it's narrow, constricted, and it's difficult. Okay? See, it's what? That's setting expectations for us. What to expect so we don't doubt. Right? So it's very important. This example is, is very, very helpful. Yeah. Jesus uh, did show John, Jesus did show John that he is God's servant, promised by Isaiah. Jesus is the coming one. What John needs to do is to believe Jesus is the coming one. Don't look for another. Yes. John is to realize that some of his expectations of what happens when Messiah comes needs to be adjusted. But don't go and look for another. And that's what happens to Christians at times. Their expectations are shattered and they go and look for another. I don't want that to happen to any of you. Some of you are in deep waters. Some of you are in waters that I haven't had to travel through. But don't go look for another. Okay? Don't. Jesus will bring you through. But beware of the wrong expectations. Sadly, 
I mean, there's theology and teaching that denies what I'm saying here and that creates all kind of false expectations in people. And those people end up going to look for another when those expectations are shattered. Or they get thrown into a miserable introspection witch hunt for sin. You know, I must be sinning. I must be sinning. That's so... uh, I feel feel a little anger. That's sheep abuse. That's sheep abuse. That's bad, dangerous stuff. The way is narrow. It's difficult. That leads to life. You follow Jesus... You're on that narrow way. <laughs> so, I think you got the point that, that I'm making. Now, Jesus' final word to John is not only a word to John, but to all who hear the gospel of Christ. His last final word, verse 23. Go tell John that, and the last thing, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That's his final word. Let's think about that. Sadly, many are offended because of Jesus, and they will fall away. They don't continue to believe what Jesus says and then believe in him. They are offended, and they fall away. In Jesus' day, many, after witnessing his power and listening to his message, became offended. Jesus could work unlimited miracles, and they were still offended with him. They were deeply offended with him. They disliked his teaching. That's too mild. (laughs) They hated his teaching. They were offended. Jesus said, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Mark 8-11 through 11 is an example of the offense. Then the Pharisees came out. This is when Jesus had crossed the Sea of Galilee and showed up on the shore. The Pharisees were right there. They're going to pounce on him. And they're going to contend with him. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. If you know the gospel account, they had seen so many signs already. (laughs) And they're disputing with him. They're disputing with his teaching, you see. They're disputing with things that Jesus, who is none other than the Word of God, (laughs) has said. You're not too smart to dispute with the Word of God. (laughs) Okay, You know, you're not going to be right. When you dispute with the Word of God, Jesus is what? The Word. You're not going to be right when you dispute with anything that Jesus says because He is the Word. But they're going to take Him on. They're going to dispute with Him. They came out and they began to dispute with Him, seeking from Him a sign from heaven. They'd seen many. Testing Him. And look how he responded. 
But Jesus, but he sighed deeply in his spirit. Oh, I don't know if I had responded that way. <laughs> oh, he, he is just distressed at the hardness of their hearts and their unbelief. He sighed, I'm in Mark chapter 8, verse 11 through 13, but he sighed in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Or surely I say to you, no sign shall be given this generation. And he left them and getting into the boat, departed to the other side. They were offended. They were offended with him. You can be sure they were not disputing whether he, whether or not he had performed great miracles. <laughs> they weren't disputing over that. They were offended. It seems that all mankind, in one form or another, has this type of problem with God's Son. We want to dispute with him. He is not quite what we expect a Savior to be. He's not quite what we expect the Messiah to be. And therefore, we are offended and dispute with Him. We think God's Son ought to be different than the Son He sent. That's where many unbelievers are stuck and it's proud it's pride and it's self-righteousness we don't like the savior that God sent well I hope that's not true of any of you <laughs> because he's a wonderful savior God gave his best there is no better Savior. There is no Son more glorious. There isn't something more costly that God could have done. Right? The blindness is in our eyes. He's a magnificent Savior. He's none other than the Son of God. Joined to our human nature to be one of us. And yet, many are offended. They're offended over him. They don't like what he says. They don't like what he demands. Don't be among them. Don't be among them. The Apostle John summed up that offense part very well in the conclusion to his message. <laughs> he summed that up very well uh, <clears throat> in John chapter 1. He was in the world, <clears throat> and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Now, but notice, Jesus' final word to John is a beatitude, isn't it? It's a beatitude. Go and tell John 
the things you have seen and heard, and blessed is he. It's a, ble- it's a beatitude. We call those beatitudes. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. You want to be blessed? Receive him. Accept him as he has been given. Say, I don't want to change anything about the Lord Jesus. I want him to be exactly what the Father intended and what the Father sent. No changes, please. (laughs) I want to know him. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So Jesus sends back a gentle warning and great promise to John and to you and me. He does. Jesus shows you his credentials by giving the evidence that he is the coming one from the prophets. Do not seek another. Do not seek another. You may have to adjust some of your expectations as John needed to. And I may have to adjust some of my expectations as John needed to. But remember, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Okay, let's pray. Oh, Father, the way you work in the lives of your children, in the lives of your prophets, in the lives of John, Lord, and even in our lives, Lord, we confess There are times we are offended (laughs) and we do struggle with things that you have said and things that you have said through your Son. We thank you for your patience with us and your gentleness, Lord, that our Savior sighs when He sees this kind of unbelief. Oh, Lord, thank you that you have revealed your Son to so many of us. And we acknowledge that he is altogether glorious. Oh, God, thank you. Protect us from the evil one that will accuse us, Lord, of terrible things, even as he accused you in the garden with Eve, that you somehow were a beggarly God and that you weren't good. Oh, God, protect us from the lies of the devil and our own confused minds at times. Lord, Thank you for blessing us. We're not offended by anything you say. Help us believe you and follow you. We pray in your great name, Lord Jesus. Amen.